One of the things I've kind of learned about human nature is that most of us are rather resistant to change, aren't we? We don't like the furniture be moved. We don't like, uh, we just don't like change, period. We just, we just like to be comfortable. You get used to something and uh, you just like the way it is. I remember when I was growing up, my, my parents moved the furniture into the house and it still sits there today. And then when I started dating Suzanne, like every three months, they moved everything just because they were, they were bored with it. And so when we, got, when we got married, this was one of our first conflicts in marriage. I came home one day and she had moved my recliner. And I, and I said, why, why did you move the furniture? And she says, well, I just thought it would look better over here. And I said, I liked it the way it was. And so then we had this little debate about it. And so then she won and it stayed there. And so then I got it used to it being there in the new spot. And then I came home one day and she moved it again. So then we went through the, the, this whole thing. And it's just, I think, human nature that we don't, we don't like change. But, you know, there's areas of life where uh, without change, there's, there's no health. Most of us have probably seen uh, nieces, nephews, cousins, different people that, that we don't necessarily see all the time bring a child into the world. And you go see that newborn baby and it's, and it's cute and it's, a, it's, it's just exciting to see. If you go back a couple years later and that baby was exactly the same, we'd be horrified, wouldn't we? Something would be terribly wrong if it wasn't, if it wasn't growing. There's a lot of change that's no help. There's a lot of change that's unnecessary. But there are areas in life where change is essential to be, to be healthy. And your spiritual life is, is one of those areas. Some of y'all just went, Phew. I thought he was going to change something about her dress or where we sit or something important like that. No, not talking about anything like that today. I'm talking about our soul, our soul. When we're born again that's jesus terms to describe us coming into the kingdom when we're born again we have to grow the bible speaks in many places in the new testament about us growing up in the faith and us coming to maturity uh, paul talks about uh, like newborn babes talking about our, our spiritual condition not not our not our, our physical bodies the Apostle Paul, who is just one of the giants of the New Testament, he said about his own spiritual life, he said he had not yet arrived. He was still short of what God wanted him to do in his life. You see, the Bible tells us that one day when the Lord returns, we're going to be resurrected. And we're going to be given a new and a glorious body. And, and the Bible says that, that we don't yet know exactly what that's going to look like other than it's going to be like his resurrection body, the Lord Jesus' resurrection body. And you can sit around all day and kind of, kind of wonder about, you know, well, what is heaven going to be like? What's the new resurrection body going to be like? What, 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 all these kind of things. But I'm telling you this, the new resurrection body will not have the sinful nature that we have now. And until we receive that, uh, to the day we die, we're going to fall short of the glory of God. 
And so we're still, as long as we're on this earth, uh, still in this body, we're still on a journey in which we need to progress toward becoming more like Jesus. There's not one of us here that have arrived. There may be many people here that are way ahead of me in spiritual maturity and growth and development. You may be way ahead of everybody else in your house. You might be way ahead of all your neighbors. That, that, that might even be true about you. Now, I'll give you a hint. If it is true about you, you're probably not thinking it right now. But it might be true. But God is still not finished transforming you into the image of his son. There's still change that yet needs to happen in your life in order for you to continue to grow and continue to develop. And so today we're going to look at a parable that Jesus told, a parable in which two attitudes are contrasted, pride and humility. Pride will keep us from growing because pride will lead us to think that we don't have anything else that we need to learn. We don't have anything else that we need to change. We don't have anything else that we need to do. After all, we're perfect or at least near perfect compared to everyone else. Humility, which, which a lot of people don't understand, and I hope by the end of today's sermon you'll have a good grasp of the biblical teaching of humility, which is not putting yourself down. Humility will lead us to hear from the Lord and respond to the Lord, which will cause spiritual growth and development in our life. So if we think about these two attitudes, pride and humility, one breeds contentment and the other breeds change. Luke chapter 18 is where we'll be beginning in verse 9. Would you just join me in standing out of honor and reverence for God's word as we read this together? Speaking about Jesus, it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray together. Father, I pray today that you'd help us to humble ourselves so that, Lord, we might seek you, we might hear from you, we might follow you, that, Lord, we would grow in our faith. We ask that you'd help us to understand this passage today and, Lord, to apply it to our lives. For it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. 
You may be seated. Well, Jesus tells about these two people that go in the temple to pray. And, and, and the one is a Pharisee and the other is, is a tax collector. And these two people, it couldn't be more, more polar opposite. And so the first man, who is, of course, the Pharisee, models for us what pride looks like. And the thing that we learn as we look at his life is that pride will separate us both from God and from people. Pride will separate us from both God and, and from people. And so we're going to see that as we look at what happens as this man begins to pray. First, in verse 9 that we just read, uh, the Bible gives us an introduction to the parable. And so this introduction explains what the parable is about and who it's addressed to. And it says he also told this parable, and it says to, so here's the recipients, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. You know, you and I cannot both trust in ourselves and in God for righteousness at the same time. We must choose one or the other. And this Pharisee uh, was trusting in his own deeds and his own works. And so Jesus addresses this parable to help people to understand the kind of attitude that leads us to trust in God and the kind of attitude that leads us to trust in ourselves. So in this parable, he tells there's, there's two people and uh, one is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector. We're a long way from the first century and uh, there's a lot of the, the, the culture and the context of the Bible that's kind of foreign to us. So if we're going to really understand the parable, I think we've got to think for a moment about uh, who Pharisees were, tax collectors in the first century, and how people would have heard this parable. You and I, when you hear Pharisee, if you've been in church very long, it's almost always negative. I don't know if, uh, if anybody's ever had a positive thought about Pharisees that's read the New Testament and understood what it teaches about them. When we hear Pharisee, we just hear we hear negative. We hear some legalistic, judgmental person who would ultimately scorn Jesus as the Messiah. But that's not how Pharisees were viewed by many in the first century. The Pharisees were extremely religious people. They were extremely religious people, and they were extremely devoted to their faith. Many Pharisees were greatly respected in the first century. Now, you and I can look back and through the teaching of Jesus, we see all their flaws and their faults, but many in the first century greatly respected the Pharisees. And tax collectors, I know that uh, we're coming into tax season, aren't we? Uh, most of us don't get excited when we hear about taxes or tax collectors, but it's still not the same as in the first century. Re remember that, that Israel was under foreign occupation. The Romans had come in. They weren't in Rome, right? The Romans had come in and had taken over their country. And they had recruited people who were willing to collect taxes from their own people to, to give to the Romans. And so, so what kind of a person uh, volunteers to collect taxes for a foreign invader? Mostly opportunists. And so the Romans wanted their taxes. And they were willing to turn a blind eye to any extra taxes that were collected or any extortion that was done. 
And so this profession of tax collector in the first century uh, was just a, a magnet for corrupt, greedy people. And so Jesus tells this story about two men going to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And as people heard it in the first century, they would have said, oh, the Pharisee is going to show us how to pray. In their mind, the Pharisee should have been the hero of the story. It would be like today, I don't know what Jesus would use as examples if he were to tell this parable today. Perhaps Jesus would say two men went into church on Sunday morning to pray. And one was a deacon and the other was a drug dealer. And immediately, what would we think? Positive, the deacon. Negative, the drug dealer. There's a lesson here that we need to be careful uh, who we pick to be our heroes. Because there are a lot of people that on the outside, it looks like they've got it together. And it looks like they're doing the right thing. But God doesn't look at the outside. God looks at the heart. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, uh, the Bible is describing here the, the Lord speaking to the prophet Samuel as he was about to anoint the Lord's king over Israel. Uh, Samuel was rather surprised at the Lord's choice because he would have chosen one of David's brothers. But here's what the Lord said in 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Following God is all about our heart. And, and we, we don't mean the muscle inside of our bodies, pump of blood, but but metaphorically, we're talking about our will, our desires. And God is not just concerned about what we're doing on the outside. He's concerned about why we're doing our inward motivations. Because you see, God loves us and he wants us to love him. And so two people go into the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee who on the outside uh, looks like everything is right in his life. And the other is a tax collector who is known to be greedy, immoral, and unjust. Well, notice what happens is the Pharisee begins to pray. It says in verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself. Do you notice he's standing by himself? Pride will separate us not just from God, but also from people. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Well, when we think about pride, there, there, we, we use words in different ways. And not everything that we call pride is, is bad. And someone says to you, boy, your son is really, just really excelling. You say, I know. Yeah, he's He's done really well lately. I'm really proud of him. Uh, that's not the kind of pride that we're talking about. It's, it's good to, to rejoice in seeing the fruit of your labor. The pride that we're talking about is pride that leads us to compare ourselves with other people. You see, both pride and humility 
are acts of comparison. Pride comes from comparing ourselves to other people. And so notice, notice what the Pharisee says as he prays. He says, I thank you that I'm not like other men, that I'm not like other men. So this attitude of pride comes about from the Pharisee who compares themselves to other people. So pride will lead us to compare ourselves to other people and rejoice that we're not like them. Pride also manifests itself in showing contempt for other people. You know, the problem with comparing ourselves to other people is that first, that's not God's standard of righteousness nor his definition of sin. To sin is not to fall short of our neighbor. To sin is to fall short of the glory of God. You know, another reason why comparing ourselves with other people is a horrible idea that will mislead you in all kinds of ways. Because one, we don't even know what to compare ourselves to. Now, I've pastored long enough and had conversations in homes and in my office and on the phone with enough people and heard their problems and their pains to know that there are many people that on the outside look like everything's perfect and they got it all together. And yet the reality is they are struggling with all kinds of pain and all kinds of problems. And we often compare ourselves with other people. And the reality is what we're comparing ourselves to is just a facade, a false view of who those people are. The person you're comparing yourself to doesn't even exist. Another reason it's a terrible idea is because God doesn't judge us by what we see on the outside. God judges us by the heart. And there's a lot of people in this world that are really good at faking things. And they pretend to be something that they are not. And so when you begin to compare yourself with other people, first of all, it's a false comparison. But the main reason that we shouldn't compare ourselves with other people is because it creates pride and arrogance in our lives. When we begin to compare ourselves with other people and we find people that from our perspective have sinned a little more or sinned a little worse or currently still in sin, then we begin to puff ourselves up because we see ourselves as farther along than they are. We see ourselves as making better choices than they have made. We see ourselves as better than they are. And you, and you know what happens? We begin to diminish our view of sin. And so we think, you know, I, I still sin, but it's really not that bad because it's much less than everybody else still sins. I mean, my sins are not very serious. It's not like the other people that I know at work. It's not like people in my neighborhood. My sins aren't anything like that. I mean, I've come so far. I mean, the, th the things that I've got left to change now, pretty minuscule. I mean, they don't, they don't even matter. And so we get this idea that we have arrived spiritually and we no longer have any need to grow, no longer any need to repent. We don't have anything to confess. We don't have anything to deal with because the, the minor imperfections in our life are, are just that. They're just mere imperfections. And after all, nobody is perfect, are they? Nobody is perfect. Had a neighbor in Atlanta one time. He meant very well. He really did. He told me one time, he says, Kevin, your problem is you're trying to live too perfect of a life. 
He, he meant very well. But that's, that's a ridiculous statement, isn't it? See, what happens is when we begin to think that all these things that we're still short of don't really matter anymore because we're so far ahead of everybody else. And so this comparison breeds pride in our life so that, so that now this pride manifests itself in arrogance. And so all of a sudden, instead of coming into the church to, to serve, we come into the church to be served. Instead of coming to the church to hear from God, we come in the church to tell God something. In fact, uh, you know, we may even get to the point that, 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 well, God should just be thankful that we're here. That's, that's what arrogance looks like. And arrogance grows out of this pride, which grows out of comparing ourselves to other people and puffing ourselves up because we've put other people down. This next man has a completely different attitude. This next man has an attitude of humility. And you see, pride will lead us to compare ourselves with other people and rejoice that we're not like them. Humility will lead us to compare ourselves to God and mourn that we're not like him. The Bible says, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If we look throughout Scripture, we see people encountering God. And I believe that, that, that just a glimpse into the holiness of God and the power of God will leave us in awe. Sometimes we see it as we read through the Scripture. Sometimes we see it as God convicts us through the Spirit. But if we just get a glimpse of the holiness and the power of God, then we understand where we stand before him. Now, this is what humility is. Humility is not putting yourself down. Humility is having a, a proper view of who God is and who you are before him. You see, when we compare ourselves with other people, we'll always find people that are in worse shape, that have committed more sin, and we'll be able to build ourselves up and think that we don't have any growth, that we no longer need any growth. We have arrived. But no matter how far we grow in our faith, when we begin to compare ourselves to God, we realize how far, far we still fall short of who he is. See, Kevin, that's an impossible goal. Now, it, it is impossible for us. It's not impossible for God. He's the one that is transforming us into the image of his, of his son. And so we have to come with the right attitude, recognizing there's something left that still needs to be transformed. There's still some work for him to do. And this comes about by understanding who God is. It won't come about by looking around the community and seeing all the problems and saying, well, thank God I'm not like that. Thank God that's not my kids that are in the paper. And that, that, that won't lead us to seek growth and transformation from God. But when we begin to see who he is and realize how far we still are from having the same heart 
that God has, that attitude will lead us to forgiveness and repentance and spiritual growth. Think about some of the people throughout the Bible that, that just got a little glimpse into the power and glory of God. There was Simon Peter. Early on in his life, uh, Simon Peter is out on a boat. And Jesus tells him to, to throw down his nets. And Simon Peter says, Simon Peter, who, by the way, is a professional fisherman, fishing on the same lake his entire life. He knows it inside and out. He says, Rabbi, we've, we've we fished all night. And we, you know, there's, it's, there's not any point. And Jesus says, let down your nets. And he lets down the nets. And there's such an amazing catch of fish that Simon Peter realizes that Jesus is more than a mere man. And so Luke chapter 5, verse 80, Luke tells us about this. It says, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. And listen to what he says. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And Peter got a glimpse into the power of God. He saw his own sin because of the contrast. There may not be much contrast between you and other people in this church but when you compare yourself to God, you'll see the contrast. And Peter said, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. It tells us why he responded this way in verse 9. For he and all who are with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. But listen to what Jesus said. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid from now on. You will be catching men. I love that Jesus said to Simon, Peter, he said, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I, we heard so much. I don't know if I read this in the last week or I heard somebody say it at the conference, but I've been reflecting on this for several days. <clears throat> Have you ever thought about this? The Bible tells us that Jesus is the one who's going to conduct the final judgment. He, he's the one that we're going to stand before. So the one who will judge all the earth is the same one who went and died in our place. Jesus gives us reason not to be afraid, but simply to humble ourselves so that we might be changed. Isaiah the prophet in the Old Testament, he, he had the same type of experience. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, he got a glimpse of the glory of God. And he says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, both pride and humility come from comparisons. If you constantly compare yourself to other people, you will puff yourself up. But when you focus on who God is, when you look at the life of Jesus and you see his heart and his attitude and his teachings, and you realize how far you still are away from completely conforming to that, that, that brings us to an attitude of humility. 
Humility, well, what is it? I've talked about it this whole sermon. A lot of people think that, that humility is just putting yourself down, but that's, that's not humility. That God is not calling us to, to put ourselves down. Uh, some, some people uh, try to put on some air of humility, but they're not really humble. You know, if you, if you said to me today, said, boy, pastor, you're tall. And if I say, no, I'm not, I'm not really. I'm not really tall. I'm probably about 4'8". I mean, that's, that's not humility. That's just a lie. I mean, humility, that, that's not humility. And I see people all the time trying to be humble, but, but, but they're not because they don't really understand what it is. Humility is not, is not putting yourself down. Humility is not refusing to accept a, a, a compliment. Humility is understanding that God is the creator and we're the creation and that he is perfect and holy and righteous. And, and on our best day, our best acts of righteousness are, the Bible says, like filthy rags by comparison to his righteousness. So when you think about pride and humility, they both come from comparing ourselves. And here's some of the consequences or benefits of pride and humility. Pride will make you content with your present condition. Pride will make you content. So you no longer come to worship to, to learn anything. You just, you just come to, to support those who, who need to hear the message. Uh, you no longer come ready to respond to God in any way. You're just available to counsel those that need to respond. Pride will lead us to be content with where we are spiritually. Humility will give you a hungry, hunger to experience the work of God in your life. And that's what we see in this tax collector. It says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast and here's what he prayed. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The point of this parable is that two men went into the temple to pray, but only one left justified. And the irony is that the one that left justified was not the better person. There's no question that this, this Pharisee in the parable had committed less acts of sin, had pr tried harder to follow the law, but yet had completely missed the heart that God was looking for. And the tax collector, if he was like other tax collectors in the first century, probably committed all kinds of sin, extorted people for money, took advantage of people, built up wealth through his own greed, but yet, he humbled himself before God. And this is not my judgment or my opinion about what happened. These are the words of Jesus. Here's what Jesus said. I tell you, this man, talking about the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You remember the first words introducing that parable? 
said, and he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. You see, only God can justify us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a place in our life for good works. There's a place in our life for obedience. And God is certainly calling us to holy living. But our righteousness is not attained by that. Our righteousness comes from the forgiveness that only God can offer. And God offers it when we come ready to receive it. Let's pray together. Father, I pray today that you'd help us not to walk in pride and arrogance, constantly aware of better decisions that we've made than other people. God, I pray that as we seek you, we might continue to grow in our faith. Lord, like this tax collector, help us to sincerely and honestly seek your mercy so that we might be forgiven, so that we might, like this man, go home righteous. For it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. As we sing this morning, I want to invite you just to, to reflect on your heart. Maybe just say a quick prayer. And say, God, what, what work do you want to do next in me? Do you know, I believe that if we ask God to search our hearts and reveal things to us, he will. He will. He'll show us things. Things that we need to repent of. Things that we need to commit to. Things that we need to embrace. Things that we need to let go. You see, I, I think that God wants more for you spiritually than you probably even know is available. But we receive it first by coming in humility recognizing that we don't have anything to bring the Lord. We come so that he might speak and do a work in us. Today, if you need somebody to pray with you, if you have a, a need you want to pray about, if you have decisions you need to make, I invite you to come forward as we sing. Let's stand together.